Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Tally-ho, tally-ho. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. Uh, well, what a treat we have for you today. Uh, James, who are we talking to today? Yeah, first of all, I'll just say I like what you did there. That was good with that intro. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have got my great old mate, Paul Beaver, here. And it, frankly, it's a, it's criminal that we haven't had anyone before. Um, Beaver is, uh, as well as being an all-round top bloke, um, is a pilot. He was in the Army Air Corps. He's an honorary group Captain Beave, I think, in the RAF. Uh, he's an air display director. He's a historian in his own right. Um, he's been involved in all sorts of things. Um, he's written about a book about Spitfire, the Spitfire people, and various other things, and just knows everything there is to know about Spitfire. Since we're coming up to the 85th anniversary of the first flight of the Spitfire, who better to have on the show? Thank you, matey. I really appreciate that. Um, And the Spitfire has been my part of my my passion for, I don't know, 30, 35 years. And and my sort of way of doing history is to um, go back to primary sources. I, I, I was lucky enough to to be trained in intelligence a million years ago. And, and I used the same doctrine as I got taught at, at in those days, Ashford, on, on how to do how to do the proper analysis of, of the, the other side. In my day, of course, it was the Cold War. So I've used that to look at the Spitfire. 
And, you know, I get so fed up with people who, and I've got a whole row of books here on Spitfires. I get so fed up with the same bollocks that comes out. And it's all based on a movie in 1941 called First of the Few, um, uh, and which has people view it as a documentary. It is purely a propaganda movie. Yeah. I need to make an aeroplane that can, it's all that, isn't it? Can strike like a bird, all that sort of... Um, uh, and can terse... spit fire. I do, I've called it a spitfire. Spitfire, yeah, the terse <laughs> tones of the thing, yeah. Uh, um, the thing is, uh, Paul, at Christmas... And you always know, and you know that you know that um, um, RJ Mitchell's ill because he's sitting from a seat with a rug over his knees. That's right. Which, which shows that it's serious. <laughs> that's the, the, yes, that's the, the red flag for serious illness in a black and white movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, Christmas, uh, Paul, I read as one of our Christmas readings, uh, Geoffrey Quill's account of, of, um, of the first flight. And obviously he didn't fly, the, he didn't do the first flight, but of the first flights and his first impressions of the Spitfire. Um, and and the, the thing that struck me in his book was the granular, was the fact that he was clearly quoting his logbook. This whole, this whole, because it, it's an experiment, it's a prototype. It's, ex, it, is it all written down, all available to be looked at in your, in, in this primary source style? In which case, so why are people hung up on the uh, okay, film? Okay, so there, 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 you, you've opened up a whole, um, a whole tin of worms here. Um, Great. With this. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yes, everything is there, if you know where to look for it. Right. So when I wrote Spitfire People, which James has kindly uh, talked about, and, and actually when I also did, um, I followed up with a smaller book five years ago, Spitfire Evolution, I wanted to describe all 72 variants of the Spitfire so yeah. that you actually knew which was which. Um, but if you go back to the primary sources, and they're held in places like Churchill College, Cambridge, which has the Vicar's Supermarine uh, archive, um, and I found that at Solent Sky Museum in Southampton, they had filing cabinets they'd never opened that had right. been saved from the supermarine site at Hursley near Winchester in about 1957. They were going to be burned. They'd just been thrown outside. He arrived with a, with a van, put them in the back of the van. And I started reading through this and I, and I, I couldn't see R.J. Mitchell anywhere. Um, and right. I thought, this is really interesting. So why haven't I done this? And then out of the blue, because you'll know what it's like when you do a, a, a talk, you get people coming out of the audience and they come up to you and they say, oh, I, I just thought you'd like to know my father did this or my grandfather did that or my mother did that or my grandmother did that. And you start talking to them and you find that they are their own primary source, if you like. Well, they are, I suppose they're technically a secondary source, but they have the primary source material, diaries, letters, photograph albums and stuff. So when you start to put all this together, it's, it's good intelligence um, gathering. Um, you put all this together and it's just fab. And you come up and you go, so hang on a minute. You mean that Elf Faddy did the outline design for a fighter? Why did he do that? Well, the Type 224, which was the first Spitfire, if you like, because it was, it looks like a Stuka. Absolutely. Yeah. Fixed yeah. undercarriage. You know, it's yeah. an awful looking aeroplane. Um, and... You, you look at that and, and just Mitchell got it completely wrong because that was where he led the team. So Mitchell, remember, is not a designer. He's an engineer. He's a yeah. brilliant engineer, but he's not a designer. Elf Faddy, who also, and this is the other thing I love about this, nearly all of them 
that are involved in uh, in the in the Spitfire program uh, were apprenticed engineers for railway companies. So you know, and and <laughs> it's it's just quite remarkable. And of course, the Vickers Supermarine factory um, at um, uh, at Eastleigh, or the sheds at Eastleigh, are right next to Southern Railways Engineering Works. So they could go and get these brilliant people. This is when. An engineering apprenticeship was valued so much more than a first or even a second degree uh, in engineering because it taught you the hands-on. It was all about hands-on stuff. Well, a, a lot of these guys never went to university, did they? I mean, Barnes-Wallace didn't. The I, only I, guy who went to university in the Supermarine Spitfire team that I've found was Beverly Shenston, a Canadian who did his first and second degrees in aerodynamics and University of Toronto and then found that you couldn't do a PhD in aerodynamics of wings anywhere in the British Empire. So he went to Heidelberg. And there he was under the tutelage of people like Pradel. And I've got a photograph which came to me because I was a meeting at a meeting of Rolls-Royce Heritage and they had a German there and we were just discussing the, the jet engine. And he said, well, of course, I've got these great pictures from Heidelberg or this great picture which shows Shenston um, with uh, with Pradel and and the team discussing the elliptical wing in 1929, and he works for Heinkel, doesn't he? At some point, well, he he works for the University of Heidelberg, who are being funded by Heinkel to do a high speed wing right. for a mail plane, which becomes the Heinkel 70. But they've also developed then they developed the Heinkel 112, which has the elliptical wing, doesn't it? And it does, and and you start looking at this, and, it, and it, I find it really fascinating. Mitchell said, "Well, I don't want a um, uh, a university trained aerodynamicist. We can do this." And Faddy said to him, "According to Faddy's son's diary, now Faddy's uh, son sadly has has also passed away he, uh, because he's uh, he was in his late nineties." He said, well, you know, yes, we do, because we want the maths. Neither of us are good at that good at maths. They put this team together. But the, the other wonderful thing was that Elf Faddy's son could remember the, that Elf Faddy sitting in the, um, in the dining room of their house, I think it's somewhere at Chandler's Ford, just, just north of Southampton, and drawing the outline of the Spitfire on the wallpaper and saying, this is what we need. We'll need this, this inline engine. We need this sort of flow. This is how it's going to have to work. And Mitchell going, yeah, yeah, I'm sure we can engineer that. And Mrs. Faddy coming in and saying, what are you doing? And bringing a cloth in <laughs> and wiping it off. So, you know, it, I just love that granularity of, of the detail. This isn't, you know, a big, um, you know, as in the movie, Mitchell, Leslie Howard, sitting on the cliff thinking big thoughts. It's actually how engineering is really done. Two or three people with lots of knowledge sitting down with a pencil and with a rubber and a razor for our American friends um, and, and actually just sketching and drawing and then taking away and looking again. And they often say that an engineer's most important tool is not his micrometer or his hammer or his slide rule, it's actually his, his rubber, it's his eraser. It's being able to take those lines out, which is when you see television programmes and you see the uh, engineers' drawings. I was watching something the other night and, and they were looking at the V2 and they had these big thick pencils, obviously that central props had, had provided with it. No, no, thin lines. No, no, it'd be 0.5, right? 2H, you know, let's do this yeah. properly. 
Anyway, so there you go. I, I went in, I did this, I looked at all the stuff, I pulled out drawings that hadn't been seen and that you could smell. You know what that lovely smell of something that's yeah, been yeah, locked yeah. away for years? And started looking at this, and, and there was there were lots of AFs on it, but there were no RJMs. AF Alfadi, RJM, RJ Mitchell. So Mitchell in this in this aspect then is is the engineering project manager. At, at Supermarine on on the fighter project, that's what, that's what I call him. Al, is is I call him the conductor of this brilliant orchestra. Yeah. There are 150 of them they put together um, to work on the Spitfire, and, yeah. and I've got there's some brilliant photographs that that are in in uh, in my book of, of 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 people. I've managed to identify everybody in every photograph because I think that's really important. Shouldn't the charge hand who swept up the drawing? office if he's in the photograph be named <laughs> you know he he is just you know I, I go back to that wonderful thing about the guy um at cape canaveral who's sweeping the floor and somebody says well what are you doing he said i'm helping to put a man on the moon that's exactly <laughs> right <laughs> you know but beef yeah. beef isn't the other thing is is, is also that it, it's not that Supermarine have only got one project going at any one time, is it? Because 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 I think the thing that really is occupying Mitchell in his final years is the um, is the four engine, three hundred mile an hour bomber, isn't it? Well, there's actually three things that 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 that, that are going from. He realised, and, and and so you get this in the movie. You know, he dedicated his life to to uh, to developing the Spitfire and and whatever. Actually, from being diagnosed with cancer in about 1933 onwards he was rarely around he went to austria um, for surgery he went to london for surgery in those days the only thing you could do for rectal cancer was was cut bits out so he he was he was not around and but he he was such a good manager of men that he put Mm. a team together and this is the key thing this is a team effort you know we should be really really proud of those blokes um you know, they came from all over Britain. Um, El Fadi came from Newcastle, um, where he'd been at Parsons building um, boilers for ships as his apprenticeship. Yep. All these people, you know, they all come down and, um, uh, and work at Supermarine. <laughs> and it's a, a, the most eclectic group of really bright people. Um, and they're bright engineers. And that's what I love about it. It's, you, you can just see all of that, that being put together and then wham and then as you say Mitchell is this great brain so he's he's gone from from doing all sorts of things um uh, the Snyder Trophy which we must mention although the S6B the winner in 1931 of course has no direct linear connection with the Spitfire other than it was almost a technology demonstrator it showed how you could stress um, the cladding on the side to give strength. It showed how an inline engine was much better than a, than a radial and all of these things. But so Mitchell was also by 1936 aware that the Spitfire would be okay, but it would be a short range interceptor. You know, the way that the plans were coming, and at that time, of course, <coughs> it was still called the Type 300, uh, he needed to do something else. So he looked at a turreted fighter, he looked at a twin engine fighter with four cannon. Um, and he also wanted to have a replacement for the Walrus. It's an amphibian, technically. It's a biplane. I mean, it's <laughs> a biplane with a pusher engine. It, they were being still being made uh, at Southampton in 1943. And, and, and that's, there's all sorts of stuff I've found recently, um, including letters from the Air Ministry files, which, which say, um, actually, after 310 Spitfires, we're going to stop 
um, uh, ordering <laughs> Spitfires. And um, uh, the Vickers um, Supermarine down at Southampton um, can start making bow fighters because we need the range. We need a twin-engine fighter with four cannon. That, and that's something that, um, uh, that Mitchell was looking at. But the thing he really wanted was B-1737, which was the specification for a four-engine bomber. So his design, and I believe that his design and engineering is sufficient um, what we know about it now to be able to say this, that it was going to fly faster and higher and carry more bombs than a Lancaster. And it was going to be yeah. pressurized. So it could Gosh, fly yeah. up and we didn't have all the hassle that you had with aircrew having to go on oxygen um, yeah. and the like. And it was going to be higher than the flak and all of those those good things. Which doesn't happen till the B-29, does it? That the, the Americans yeah, ex- ex- exactly. are... Exactly. So we're 10 yeah. years ahead. You yeah. know, and, and it's, it's like... The, uh, oh, you're right. Like, like the, the, the twin-engine fighter with, with the cannon in the nose. Well, everyone was looking at that. The BF-110 in Germany was, yeah. was looking at that. Why, why was it without him that, that once he died that the, the, the four-engine uh, pressurised cabin 300-mile-an-hour-plus bomber didn't happen? Well, the Air Ministry didn't, didn't, didn't want it. They'd already selected the Sterling. And so that they... By that time, they had they had their eggs in another basket. So did they just simply, quite simply, back the wrong horse? Yeah, well, they, well, they, they backed what was they thought was available. Sterling, Halifax, Lancaster, in that order. Um, but the other problem they had, they didn't have enough engines. They didn't have enough people in the air ministry to supervise uh, these things. And they, they, they had started to divide work off into companies to meet this crying need for interceptor fighters. We'd had this whole thing in the early 30s, the bomber will always get through. Don't bother about fighters, don't need them. So you get this sudden, I mean, this is the, the other great thing about this. Um, are, are the, the other people that you can go, do you know, without this guy, it wouldn't have happened. Neville Chamberlain. Yeah. A Pisa in yeah. chief. Hang on, stop. Until 1937, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Who's the guy who signed the check for the first Spitfires? Because he had the foresight to see that we needed some Spitfires. We needed fighters. He'd already funded the, the Hawker Hurricane, but realised his briefings from people like Air Marshal uh, Freeman and, uh, and Hugh Dowding were that this was, that was okay. That was a, you know, what, what we call a second generation aircraft, but, but actually what you needed was a third generation. It was a, a, or it was perhaps a two and a half generation in, in, in the Hurricane. Um, but what you really needed was this slick point defence fighter. And remember that, the, that these aircraft were designed to shoot down bombers. So the Spitfire and the Hurricane were never designed as dogfighters because you weren't going to have a dogfight against the Germans. Their fighters, their single-engine fighters, couldn't reach Britain, could they? Because they would have to use other countries. So, well, the Netherlands and Belgium were neutral and France had the largest air force in the world. So it wasn't going to be... Um, trodden down by the Germans, so you didn't need to have um, an aircraft that was capable of dogfighting. And, and eventually, both Hurricane and Spitfire proved themselves to be exemplary at dogfighting. It's all really interesting, isn't it? So talk us. I mean, but talk us through that first flight, then. I mean, so so the build up to that and how it happens, and uh, and 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 who 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 does the first flight, and it, it's Mutt Summers, isn't it? And 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 who and who's watching this? It was originally um, uh, they they had it sort of slated as to who was going to do it, and Jeffrey Quill was going to do that, or or George Pickering. We never talk about George Pickering. He died in nineteen forty three. 
Um, and yet, um, here... Jenny, I know his daughter. Yes, indeed. And Jenny lives um, and not far from us um, down here in uh, the Hampshire Wiltshire yeah, Hall. Exactly. Um, yeah, but the, 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 to me, the really, really interesting thing um, is that when you look at all of this being, being put together, you find that these test pilots are not trained test pilots. They just happen to be really good. You know, <laughs> Jeffrey, Jeffrey Quill is a really good pilot. So he's taken from a fighter squadron, I think it was number 23, it's sent to Martlesham Heath, which is then the Aircraft and Armaments Experimental Establishment, which eventually moves to Boscombe Down. Um, and there he does trials. And of course, at the time, everyone's doing trials on flying boats and seaplanes, because that's, that's where it is. And Mitchell was looking at a high-speed flying boat. It became the Seagull 5, eventually. But that's where he, his heart was in flying boats and seaplanes. Um, and you get these things, you get George Pickering, this, the first supermarine guy to fly the Spitfire and the second person to fly the Spitfire. So how do we know that? Well, both the daughters are around. Jenny is there for George Pickering and uh, Sarah is there um, for uh, Jeffrey Quill. Both have their father's logbooks. So we sat in our pub, the, uh, the Royal Oak down in, uh, in Goodworth, Clatford. We sat down there one day about three or four years ago and had the books out, and we were looking at who flew what when. And I discovered that um, they all went off with um, George Pickering on the about the fourth flight to take some pictures, with Mitchell in a, uh, in a oh gosh, what was it? It was a miles, uh, a mile six, I think it was. Um, and off <laughs> they go. Oh, and there's the Queen Mary on her maiden voyage. You know, it's, you get all this history coming together. It's just wonderful. Yeah, that's amazing. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. But you asked me about the first flight, so do you want me to warble on about the first flight? Absolutely. Yeah. So the first flight is the 5th of March, 1936. Not the 6th of March, as Geoffrey Quill says, because he got that wrong in his book. Yeah. Right. Um, but it is definitely the fifth. Well, that's, that's, that's remarkable, Paul, because his book, when you read his book, some of the detail in it, you know, it's, it's plainly straight from his logbook. And so then to get the date wrong, um, and now you've told me that, now I, now I don't believe a word of the book. You know? <laughs> so, there's, so there's this wonderful, wonderful picture of, of, the, of um, the Rolls-Royce that, um, is about the, the, that Mitchell awarded himself. Um, for the mm. Snyder, basically, quite rightly, because you know, that was a fundamentally interesting thing. But there you are, 5th of March, 1936, and there are just a group of people standing around. There's, there's the, um, the Air Ministry superintendent who looks after how their money is being spent. There's Geoffrey Quill. Mm. But out on the field is Elf Faddy. And I've got a picture from the Faddy family of the aircraft being prepped and Elf Faddy is standing there with a fag in his mouth <clears> as it's being refueled. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And let's just look at the health and safety case there. So the aircraft catches fire and there's no spitfire. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I just love that. And the aircraft goes off for its first flight and it goes off for eight minutes. Now, I've done the calculation and I've, I've got a, um, uh, using um, uh, Sky Demon, which I fly with as my, um, uh, my navigation aid. And I reckon they went out to the spit boy. Um, and then I've, I've since found um, um, that that was actually their plan. So they went from Eastley Airport, they flew straight down the river, they turned left, or sorry, Mutt Summers turned left, um, uh, across um, Calshot Spit, around the buoy, and back again. And they had locked down the undercarriage because they didn't want there to be an issue with that. 
and, and the aircraft uh, lands on. But what's fascinating about it is, of course, they didn't want any publicity. So they right. have absolutely no publicity uh, on this. And what you get instead um, is about, I think it's the 25th of March, you get a full press day. And thank God we've got the, the, the footage of that and we've got the report in the Southern Evening Echo um, uh, and we know a lot more about it. And that was the one that was flown by Geoffrey Quill and that's where that beautiful photograph, that air-to-air photograph of the sort of just slightly forward of the wing looking back at K-50-54. Now, then you get into, so what was it called? In Geoffrey Quill's logbook, it's called the SS Fighter. Um, and if you look at, everyone called it the Fighter. And El Fadi never called it the Spitfire, his son yeah. said. He, he, he just called it the Fighter because it was the Fighter to them. You know, was it going to be the shrew or the scarab yeah, or, yeah. or what it was? And, you know, luckily, um, Vickers, um, the big company, I mean, Vickers, you cannot underestimate how big and powerful Vickers was. And he had bought Supermarine, which was a little cottage industry. I mean, they had yeah, yeah. no idea how to put the Spitfire into production. And that caused a real problem. I mean, we could have had far more Spitfires in the Battle of Britain had they known how to do the productionization, had there not been strikes at Castle Bromwich Factory, had the, uh, you, you could say, had Beaverbrook come in before, if we'd had Beaverbrook six months earlier, um, we would have had more aircraft, probably as many as 700 more. That's such a salivating thought. I mean, if, you know, without wanting to go into the Battle of Britain in too much detail, but you know, the Spitfire didn't win the Battle of Britain, but we would not have won without the Spitfire, is, is the way yeah. I look at it. Uh, we need to take a short break right now. We're talking to Paul Beaver. Welcome back to We Have Ways. We're talking to Paul Beaver. Spitfire, 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 Spitfire. Before you go any further, Paul, why did they not have any press on the first day? In case it caught fire, pranged, went in, went in the, went in the, in the Solent. Is is that? Yeah, Gosh. I mean, th- th- this was the, the, the thing, and, and it's still the same today. I mean, I remember the Eurofighter Typhoon's first flight. It was yeah. in Germany, in Manching. It was not publicised. Um, and at the time, I was working for Sky News. Um, and I had a friend who had a camera who went down to the airfield because I found out about it and took some footage. <laughs> and, and that's how Sky News broke the typhoon's first flight story. And then they had a big press day. Yeah. And this was exactly the same. This is how all these, these projects ran, just in case, because you didn't want there to be a major calamity on your first flight. You know, had there been one, the publicity would have been so negative in government terms, in, well, uh, you know, in contracts. In f- and your competitors, I suppose, Hawker would go, see, the, 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 the Supermarine the submarine Vickers project is a waste of time. You need to order more Hurricanes. Because that, that's also going on. Because, because it's often p- portrayed as this sort of rosy thing of all these, pr- all these private ventures to deliver f- aircraft for the Second World War. You know, the de Havilland story is incredibly romantic, isn't it? It's Mr. de Havilland, his sons, his sons killed flying test aircraft you know the mosquitoes his little personal punt well yes i mean for a massive defense contract that will make him a vast amount of money at the end of the day these are really clever people and yeah. they understand money and yep. you know they're, 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 <laughs> you can't build the spitfire on love you've got no. to you, you've got to spend them you know it's money it's government contracts and of course yeah. it isn't just so, you know, you need to understand the Spitfire. Um, so Supermarine are 
are contracted to build the airframe, the wings, the, the empennage, etc. They can't do it. So they've got 150 subcontractors before they start. And these are, uh, you know, as the Americans would say, mom and pop um, uh, little businesses that make things. Um, you know, they might just make a washer. But boy, is that washer to the right tolerance, which is what it's all about in, in this engineering. Um, and so they're all over the place is really good because then you bring them together. And there's another batch of people who put them together as sub assemblies that then send them down to Wollstone or send them to Eastleigh for the final um, final development. So there's lots of really good stuff um, that's going on in, uh, in 36, 37, 38 as they're trying to get the aircraft into production and get it around, get it to the Empire Air Day in 1938 yep. so that we can use it for what today we would call soft power deterrence. You know, yeah. here you are, Germany, yeah. we've got a fighter, you know, and, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. and, it's, and it's really cool. And so there's a, a lot of that is going on um, at the time. So you've got the whole business dimension um, in this as well. And, and you've got Vickers saying, are we making more profit out of the Warus or the Spitfire? Well, the answer is they're making more out of the Warus. So <laughs> with the Spitfire, then, then we'll build it elsewhere. Vickers Armstrong comes in and starts to build and then they and then they start to build them at uh, Westland at uh, at Yeovil and you you know in order to get them going you've got them all over the place the the the, the factories Gloucester makes up you know it's it's just just fascinating the whole story of the British um, aerospace industry is really interesting it is just fascinating it's it's on it's people expertise but most importantly it's on money and it's the same in every country it exists outside a university framework as well so this is a, as you were saying earlier it's apprentice engineers it's engineering firms it's an entire engineering culture that that exists aside from a, an intellectual uh t- t- tradition isn't it which is which i think which i think is really really interesting because because that that then turns into the story of of, of british decline doesn't it that 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 we don't take science seriously in this country, and and uh, 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 and in fact, actually, we do. And this is the prime evidence of it. It's just you don't need to do it via the universities if you've got f- firms training people. I mean, railway engine. I think railway engineering is really interesting. You say it's railway engineering because I think people probably think, oh, steam trains. You know, they think of the thirties. It's like they're an anachronistic view of what railway engineering is. But railway engineering is this. Is that you're casting steel? Got uh, you're dealing with weight an awful lot because after all, you need the carriage to be as light as possible. You're dealing with all sorts of different materials, and so no wonder those people are useful in in aviation. And, 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 the, and uh, the great thing about it, El, is as well. So you take the '30s. We had the fastest steam train in the world, Mallard. Yep. We had yep. the fastest aeroplane in the world for a while, which is the yep. Type 300. But before that, the S6B, 400 miles an hour. Now, 20 yeah. years before you. You're lucky to get 100 miles an hour. It, it, yeah. you're, it's, it's, it's incredible. The fastest car, the fastest um, bluebird on water, Donald yeah. Campbell. You know, Britain is right out there at the head of this, these technologies. But these technologies are not done through universities. They are done through companies investing their own R&D money, research and development yeah. money. And because we've got really well-trained people. I'm, I'm a huge fan 
of this whole idea of apprenticeship degrees now that, that BAE Systems are doing, for example, up at Wharton. Mm, so yeah. the new Tempest fighter for, for the United Kingdom or the future um, uh, 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 offensive air system or whatever you want to call it, which isn't just a man fighter, it's a whole panoply of stuff. Yeah. A lot of what they're doing there is they're taking really bright people who just don't want to go to university. Yeah. And they're taking them into an apprenticeship and degree level uh, work. So they will end up with a degree, but they're not doing the standard three years that, 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 that most of us have, uh, did in our lives. They, they, they're doing it in a, in a different way. And I yeah. think that's, that's really interesting because it's going back to the 20s and 30s. That's essentially what they were doing. I mean, this also casts a different light on the idea that the Germans have all the good, all the, all the, all the, the technolog- technological edge, doesn't it? That... that that's a received view because you're I mean you're pulling you've pulled effectively pulled the wings off that house fly I mean the 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 the, the so that Spitfire the 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 nettle they have to grasp then Vickers Vickers Armstrong is how you turn it into how you mass produce it and, and so and so most of and be most most of the supermarine team are still working on the Spitfire throughout the war aren't they which is presumably one of the reasons why they're not doing 300 mile an hour bombers so, so just, just to, Al, I don't want to kind of sort of cut out your question, but, but, but is this where Joe Smith comes in? Yeah, Joe Smith comes in um, as the assistant to Mitchell. I mean, he doesn't become the chief designer until 1941. And in fact, from 1937 to 41, there is technically no chief designer. Um, there are engineers. But, but what's his part on the Spitfire? Because it's quite important, isn't it? He is. Um, and, and he actually comes in after um, uh, the death of Mitchell. In, in the sense of taking the productionization forward. So today you can do degrees in manufacturing engineering, which is how you make things uh, from an engineering perspective. In those days, they, they, you had to learn that on the job. So he does a, a lot of that. Um, and he is actually a guy, the guy behind the sea fire for the Navy, the navalized version. Um, uh, he makes that happen. Um, and he is an apprentice in his own right. He's, uh, he's um, been indentured. He's been qualified. There are a whole bunch of these guys um, who are there um, who are doing things like the maths. El Fadi goes on to, um, if I get this right, to, uh, to the, they had a problem with the guns freezing at altitude. Um, yeah. People hadn't taken um, guns up to 18,000 feet and, and the guns were jamming because they were icing. So Al Fadi works out a way of ducting air um, into the wings to, to just, you just raise the temperature one or two degrees you know, that sort of thing uh, you, you get the, the beautiful spires already mentioned which is a, a whole series of interlocking spars that, that, that are put together and, and you get the strength and you get the flexibility uh, in the wing, and this is this is the beauty, absolute total beauty. There it is, right there. I have a paperweight that's a section of one. You are through. so right, and if you look at that, brilliant. Um, I'm, I'm jealous of that. Um, as as it as it comes out, you get to the end of the wing. It's just that yeah. centre section. Sorry, I'm I'm pointing at my screen now because I'm so excited about this. But yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. And that spar, just look at that that those shapes. Um, this isn't this isn't what people have done before, so no. this is a, a combination of people and people like El Fadi. Um, El Fadi is a lifelong socialist, and he believed that everybody was important in the in the process. So no one person should take claim. And and, and they used to have dinners, and they used to 
um, go give him the big chair and everything. He used to say, no, I, I, it's, it, you know, this is a team effort. And that's what I love about the Spitfire. It's a team effort. It's like the Battle of Britain. I get fed up with, with people telling me that, um, you know, how the Battle of Britain was won by, by the Poles or, 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 or whatever. No, it's okay. won by the whole nation. Whole nation pulling together. If one piece had broken, like the GPO engineers who used to restring the telephone lines from Stanmore to Uxbridge when they were blown down by bomb blast, if they hadn't have done that, we couldn't have got the fighters up to the right place. Um, if the baker hadn't delivered bread um, to REF Middle Wallop's <laughs> ops room, you know, the people would have been unhappy. You know, you've got to look at it in, the, in this way. So, it, and... Supermarine is exactly the same. And um, Al was, was saying, you know, how, how did this work? Well, it, Vickers was the parent company. I mean, at one stage, they sent Barnes-Wallace down. Um, mm. uh, to, and, and, and that just did not work at all. I mean, that was <laughs> just... Barnes-Wallace, um, you know, uh, it, it was, uh, was on his bike within a week. Um, it was just not going to work. It was a clash of cultures. The supermarine culture was very much about making beautiful aeroplanes. So you go to the Royal, the Royal Air Force Museum at Hendon. There's a flying boat there. And if yeah. you put your hand along the hull of that flying boat, it's beautifully crafted mahogany. And that's what they were good at. If you look at the cowling of the Spitfire, it's been made with what's called the English wheel. And that's where you are running a piece of metal across... Um, uh, uh, a caster to get the right shape and a lot of that was done by eye but you know eventually because we need to mass produce them at, whether it's the, the all the factories around Wiltshire and Hampshire and Berkshire or and, and Castle Bromwich or, or whatever yeah you get all of that certainly you do but at the end of the day you've got to get those people together and, and all work together and initially in design and engineering, that's what Mitchell did. And then you've got Faddy coming in and you've got Smith. It's people doing, doing, just cracking on and doing their job without wishing to be in the newspapers or famous or whatever. But, Beeve, I remember you, t- I, I'm pretty sure it was you that told me about the, um, you know, everyone says, well, you know, one of the problems with the Battle of Britain is that we didn't have any cannons in our wings. And, of course, the bottom line is, is, is the whole Spitfire wing was designed not to have cannons, designed to have, you know, the reason it's so thin because it can house machine guns, but it can't house anything more than that. And you'd have never designed it in the first place if if part of the pre you know what part of the um, requirements were to have cannons because they're so big. And isn't it Joe Smith that comes up with the teardrop idea? It does. And, and Joe Smith comes up with the teardrop and and, and saves the Spitfire because it's about to be axed, isn't it? You know, otherwise it would have stopped in forty one because it you know it had it had rifle caliber machine guns. Well, by that time German bombers um, had armor, um, and you you. Know, Frequently, the 303 cannot penetrate that. So mm. you know you don't have um, uh, you don't have that 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 busting capability. Well, if it's famously isn't it, 74 Squadron fires 7,000 rounds at a Heinkel and still don't knock it down. Well, or and they've or and they've been on the receiving end of cannon. They know how effective it is to yeah one cannon shell, one twenty millimeter yeah. high explosive incendiary round in your fuel tank. That's it's it. good night, Charlie, isn't it? Um, yeah. I, I, but remember that initially the, the, the air ministry thought it would be really good if they could have two machine guns in the aeroplane. Two, two will be sufficient. That's what we had in the Bristol... Well, Bristol fighter only had one fire for firing forward. So, you know, two will be, will be twice as good as that. And then somebody <laughs> said, oh, we could have four. Oh, could we? Let's have four. And then luckily... 
Um, you've got some bright sparks um, with a bit of analysis. So actually, eight would be good because um, then you've got, uh, I, and I can't remember the figure of the, <laughs> the amount of weight of that fire hitting. But, you know, I, 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 I tell people about the difference between Hurricane and Spitfire in the way in which uh, the machine guns are grouped in the Hurricane, big wing Hurricane, the machine guns are grouped together in fours on, uh, on each wing, mm. which gives you a lot of firepower. In the Spitfire, they have to be spaced out to fit into the wing. Yeah. So yeah. the Spitfire, you know, and why didn't we put rounds that fired through the, uh, the propeller boss or something like that? You know, why did it take us, um, you know, five years to work out that just aiming the aeroplane was, you know, all you needed to do in that, in that case? So why didn't we take the, the, the Aiden cannons and 19 squadron had uh, uh at duxford had a flight i think grumpy unwin was one of the one of the pilots that had yes. cannon um but they kept jamming as well because they'd taken the the cannon hispano Sousa, i think may have been or rather than aiden um, and they'd they they flipped them over to fit them in you know the engineer who designed the cannon breach had designed it to be that way up hmm. that's what he was told to do yeah. so he did yeah yeah um <laughs> And then when you turn it on one side, well, it's not quite the same again. You know, it's, it's 90 degrees out, and that causes engineering issues as well. We get it right in the end. I mean, you just look at the, the later models of Spitfire. I mean, Winkle Brown uh, used to go on about the, the Mark 14, the first of the Griffin. And I should, I should, I should add here, actually, Beef, that, that you, are, you are a great mate of Winkle's, and you are his literary executor, and you are... Um, his official biographer too. I am, um, and I'm delighted to say that um, uh, the manuscript, I have delivered the manuscript, uh, and it's going to be quite surprising when Winkle comes out. Uh, Winkle Brown is even more interesting than we ever thought he was, which, which is really good. Yeah, and I'm lucky enough to, to have got his, all his papers, his photographs, etc. The only thing I haven't got is logbooks, but I've seen them all and, and copied the relevant stuff out. But, uh, but you know, <clears throat> Winkle believed that the that the Spitfire 14 was the best fighter of the Second World War, um, followed closely... And that's a Griffin one, isn't it? That's a Griffin-powered one? Yeah. First of the, uh, well, it's the first successful Griffin with the, with the cut-down rear fuselage. And that, to me, is really interesting, because if you look at these later models of Spitfires, they don't have anything in common. I mean, I think the, the, type, the, the Mark 47 Seafire has got the same rudder pedal as the Mark One. But you look at them, they look like Spitfires. I mean, you know, I'm shamelessly going to you know, sort of bring out one of my books. But if you look at that, you look at here, here's a Mark 2A and here's a 47. They all look like Spitfires, but yeah. they're not similar in any way, shape or form or common parts other than I think it's the, uh, the, um, uh, the rudder pedal. And you look at that and, and you think, now that is something about design that you get that feeling that it's still the same aeroplane, even though it's not. A Volkswagen Golf looks like a Volkswagen Golf, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, what we haven't said, and I'm surprised that Elle hasn't said this yet, is if it looks right, it flies right. Well, that, that, that's, what, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it, for, for, for a lot of people? And the, and the Spitfire falls squarely in that category, doesn't it? Isn't it just beautiful? I mean, I, I, I'm a bit of a Griffin fan. I have to be careful because I get the Merlin, the Merlin <laughs> lot will send me hate mail. Um, but, you know, the PV-12 engine that, that um, uh, Sir Henry Royce developed for the Schneider becomes the Merlin 
private venture again, a bit mm. like, you know, um, Vickers funded the initial Spitfire work, the yeah. Type 300 work there. Um, you know, these are a lot of people who believed in their product, believed in their workforce, knew they could develop it. But if you stand and a Spitfire comes over, I challenge anyone not to be excited because it looks right and it sounds right. And you just mm-hmm. see that aircraft. It's why at Short Valley History Festival, you know, I'd like to open any of the f- aeroplanes that we have there um, or any of the flying with a Spitfire. Uh, and wouldn't it be good to do so at We Have Ways Fest? Yes, well, we will do that, I'm sure, because, you know, <laughs> now we've, we've, we've morphed this to, to take um, care of COVID. Um, you know, we'll defeat COVID with a Spitfire. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Bee, that's just, it's, it's fantastic. It's um, very happy talking about Spitfires. Mm. Al's got this thing that I'm down on the Mark 1. I'm not really. Yeah, you um, are. There you are. Your book about the Battle of Britain. I mean, the, the, you, you really, you really stick it to the Mark One. And um, yeah, he, I'm, I'm afraid one of the things that that, that Jim's uh, Jim's problem here is that um, he's listened to too many fighter pilots talking to him. Um, so what I've decided to do, guys, and, and I'm going to invite you to this is is in September as well, uh, but after your um, your we have uh, we have ways um, event fest um, is I'm going to do the debate, the big debate, which fighter was the best fighter. Now I hope at the end of it we won't have a conclusion because that would be so much more fun. So in order that I don't get all this bollocks about the BF 109E3 um, coming out about being the best aircraft, I've asked the Air Warfare Centre at RAF Waddington to give me the actual figures for all of the pre-required performance data, what are called the key user requirements for a modern aircraft as for the the Spitfire 1, 2 and 2A, uh, for the Hurricane 1, at BF 109E3E4, at, at the same ISA temperatures, at the same heights. So we've got all of the data is exactly apples and apples and none of this bloody apples and pears stuff. So, you know, you're going to get an invitation to this, guys, because... No, bring it on. We're going to do it, it at the Army Flying Museum because I just, I just think, you know, and you might say, why the Army Flying Museum? Well, Middle Wallop operated Spitfires for 17 years, so, you know, I reckon it's just as relevant as anywhere else uh, <laughs> yeah no 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 and it's the only it's the only dispersal hut still still standing from the battle of britain thank you so much for talking to us paul i mean uh yet again i we very often we have guests on we've we, we say we could just talk about this all day and i have a feeling that that is actually entirely possible no thank you so much for joining thanks everyone for listening um we'll see you again soon cheerio Charlie ho